want to say, we need to be reminded that the last verse that we looked at last week, verse 17, right, this last statement, that the righteous shall live by faith. That is something that we have to keep at the forefront of our mind as we then read this big section about the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God is real, it's scary, it's dangerous, but it does not apply to those who are living by faith. You see, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now later we're going to see this big list of sins, and you're going to say, well, I am guilty of a lot of those. So how is God's wrath not being revealed against me, right? Well, because you, if you are living by faith in Christ, in his life and death and resurrection, in his forgiveness and in his love, you are living by faith. God is calling you righteous, right? The, ver- the very verse before preceding, if you are living by faith, God looks at you as righteous because of the work of Christ. And so the Christian, we look at this. And there's good things, and there's encouraging, and there's challenging things for us, but we have to remember that the wrath of God is, was revealed to Jesus, and he took that wrath on our behalf. Um, so this is really important to remember. So that's a disclaimer for the Christians. Now, if you're in this room this morning, and you've rejected Jesus, and you don't have faith, and you're thinking, I'm living by my own righteousness, and, and if there is a God, and if there is a heaven, I'm going to get there under my own steam, you're in for a rough, like, 30-ish minutes, <laughs> because the wrath of God is nothing to, to just turn your head from. I mean, this is, once again, this is serious stuff. And so Paul starts this statement, and really, this first section here, up through, like, verse 25, Paul answers for us an age-old question. How many of you have asked this or heard this at least once in your life? Well, what about somebody who never hears the gospel? What's God going to do with them? Are they going to go to heaven? What is he, what's going to happen with them? And Paul answers that question for us quite clearly. Right? He tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Everybody knows that God exists. I don't care how loud the atheist tells you they don't believe in God. The Bible right here is as clear as day. Everybody knows that God exists. He has revealed himself in nature to everyone. Nobody is without excuse. So a person who is ungodly and unrighteous, they are suppressing that truth in their unrighteousness, in their sin. So the logical progression is quite simple here, right? God has revealed his truth to everyone through natural means, right? We call that general revelation. You go out, you look at the mountains, you look at the trees, you look at nature, and you say, there's no way this came about by chance. Or if you're even, even just like high school biology, right? You look at the complexity of the human body and there is no way that we can honestly walk away and say, yeah, that probably is some goo that happened and just it sort of all lined itself up and now we're here by a big accident. That's a lie. And people tell themselves that lie all the time because 
Why? They don't want to be held responsible. They don't want a God of the universe who's going to tell them what to do, right? And so we are willing to lie to ourselves, and there are many people in this world who are willing to lie, but Paul says everyone knows that God is real. There is no excuse. And so through our sin, we suppress that truth. We squash it down. We forget it. We put it to the side. We want to bring other things to the front that we think are true so that we don't have to think about the thing that is true. So this truth has been revealed to everyone, to all of mankind. And here's the thing, we all rejected it. Every single one of us. We were born in sin. Every one of us rejected that. Now at some point, for those of you who are Christians who are following after the Lord, he opened our eyes, right? He gave us faith and we can believe in that. But at one point, every single one of us in this room We were suppressing this truth that God is real with the lie that I know best, that my way is better, that the things I want to do are more important than what God wants for me, right? Those are all the the things that help us to suppress this truth that God is real, that he is active. And this is a reality. And anyone who denies it, all they have to do is look at a two-year-old, right? My two-year-old runs around, well, he's three now, but... Runs around hitting people, taking stuff from people. And it's not as if when he was born, Jennifer and I were running around the house, hitting each other, taking stuff from one another. He's like, oh, well, that's, that's how you do things, right? He didn't have to learn that. He just had it. it just, he was born with it. He's a rebellious, little, cute, little guy, right? I mean, he is very cute. And I tell that people all the time, like, the Lord did us a favor in making little kids cute. Because without that, it would be hard. It would be much harder than it is. We give them away or something, right? But it's hard, right? And you see it. You see the rebellion in kids. You don't have to teach them to be disobedient. They just do it on their own. We were all rebellious. We can't deny it. And the rejection of God leads us deeper and deeper into more unrighteousness, more and more suppression, and this spirals into chaos. So a person who's never read the Bible and they die and they don't know God and nobody's ever preached the gospel to them, they die and they go to hell and God is 100% justified in sending them there, right? They did it to themselves. This is not a situation where we say, wow, that's really unfair. How could God send a person to hell if they've never heard the gospel, if they've never read the Bible, if they've never heard the name of Jesus? They are guilty just like you and I are guilty. They're not innocent until they're shown the law and then, oh, now I know that I've been sinning. They know it. Everybody knows that God is real. Everybody is guilty. The proper response is not to say in that situation, the person who has never heard the gospel, well, this is unfair because they're guilty. You see, think about it in this way. If somebody comes in and gives the person sitting in front of you a million dollars, but then doesn't give it to you, do you think that person unkind and unfair? Or are they generous? Now, our selfishness might say, wow, that's not fair. Why'd they get it? Why not me, right? We want what we want, right? We, we think about ourselves and we care about ourselves more than anybody. Like, it's just part of human nature and we try and fight that and put that sin to death, but it happens. But at its purest level, we recognize 
a billionaire who hands out a million dollars to your neighbor and not to you, he's being generous. He's not being unkind or being unfair. And it's the same thing. The fact that God gives grace and forgiveness to anybody makes him good. God not saving some is not a blot against his goodness. The fact that he would save you or save me or save anyone in this room is an exemplification of his goodness. It expounds it. It expands it. It makes him more and more good the more in which he saves. And so the question is, why would God save any of us? The fact that he does this makes him good. Choosing to not save everyone is not him being unfair. It's choosing to give his grace to whom he chooses. It's his to give. We don't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He doesn't owe it to us. He gives it to whom he chooses. So then a question I think we have to ask ourselves is what are we trying to accomplish then in evangelism? Right? Because we're not going to the non-believer and trying to tell them something. that We're not trying to, to, to reveal a new truth to them. They know who God is. It tells us right here. Everyone knows God. They know Him. What are we trying to do? What have they been doing? They've been taking that truth and pushing it down. And with their sin, they suppress it over and over every day. And they try and hide it. And they put it deep, deep within them where they don't have to think about it. When we evangelize, we are trying to bring that truth back to the surface. To make a person face it. This is what's true. The thing that you have been suppressing with whatever it is, whatever lie you are choosing to tell yourself, that you're pushing it down and you're hiding it, let me do something uncomfortable and bring that thing out that you don't want to think about. We, that's what we want to do. We want to bring out the truth of God. We want to do that sharing the gospel with them, right? Because everybody knows what is true. We call that general revelation. But the Bible is what we call special revelation, right? The gospel is something that we have to read and understand from God's word. And so we bring out the truth that they've been hiding, and then we want to, to pair that with an explanation of what the gospel is. We know the Bible says in many, many, many places that somebody must hear and believe. I'm probably going to step on at least one person's toe with this. Um, this nonsense of preach the gospel and if, uh, what, what is it, and if necessary, use words. That's out. The gospel is a sp- it's the news. It's the good news. You're not going to live your life and be kind and be polite and somebody be like, oh, he's doing that because he loves Jesus. 99% of people are kind and polite, right? They're not going to look at you and say, oh, they were nice. They brought me my mail because the guy delivered it wrong. They must love Jesus. Everybody does that. You have to speak the gospel. You have to say it out loud. It's not that your actions won't point people to the love of Jesus, but they're not going to put two and two together and say, oh man, I should become a Christian because my neighbor was nice to me and he mowed a little bit on my property and didn't just stop right at the property line, right? I mean, th- we do things. Everybody does these kinds of nice things for their neighbors and for their friends. We have to speak the gospel. You have to tell people the news. So why is it that some hear and believe and some hear and don't? I think the missing element is the faith, right? This, this statement, the righteous will live by faith. Everybody knows that God is true, but is somebody going to put their faith in God or not? Where does that faith come from? 
Ephesians 2 is pretty clear about this one. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Flip a couple pages over to the right there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Both grace and faith are a gift of God. It's not our own doing. God gives us faith. So then the question that then is debated or discussed or however you want to say that is, does God give faith to everybody? And then they choose whether they're going to to place their faith in God or not. In other words, does God choose us or do we choose God? I think that's the heart of the the question. That, That is the heart of the discussion of salvation. Can we be granted faith in God and still reject him? Now, Paul doesn't get into it to an extensive bit here, um, but I think the answer to that question is no. Everybody that God gives faith to, they believe. Because what is this about God calling people, right? If you flip to Romans 8, it says, God call, those whom he called, he, he sanctified, and those who, I, I get that it was in the wrong order, those who he called, he justified, and the, the ones that he called are the ones that he saves, right? And those he justified, and then he glorified. And so what is that calling if it's not God calling people into faith. I don't know what it else, because it's not calling them to know who he is. The entire world knows that. And so what is happening when God is calling people if he's not calling them into faith? I think that is the answer. God calls people into faith. They then have that faith, and then they live a righteous life because they have faith in Christ. And so God's wrath is not revealed to those who have faith. So if everybody knows who God is, nobody is with Nobody has an excuse, right? It's important to remember this. It's important to believe this because oftentimes we look at the world and we look at things and we say, this seems unfair that God would act in such a way. This seems unfair that he would save me and not this person as if the other person were innocent. My dad's whole side of the family, Jehovah's Witness for their whole lives, right? My grandmother, a sweet old woman. I mean, as sweet as they come, right? Just think of your grandmother. Mine's twice as sweet as yours, I promise, right? Twice as nice, twice as welcoming. She was a wonderful woman, but she didn't believe in Jesus. And I struggled with that because I would look at her sometimes and think, without the gospel, like I know my sweet old grandmother is going to go to hell and it hurts my heart because look how nice she is. And look how kind she is. But she wasn't innocent. I don't know what happened in the, in the last year or months of her life. Maybe the Lord got a hold of her in, in a time that I didn't see. But if he didn't, right, if there was no faith in her life, she went to hell and she deserved it. And it was justified by God to send her there. And that's really hard to think about. When those people that you love, who are so loving and so kind, they're guilty. They know that God is real and they've rejected him. They suppress the truth with unrighteousness. And then we see that God gives people up to their sin. Three different times he says it. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not seek 
see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind. Over and over again, Paul tells us, God looks at the unbelieving world and they're embracing their sin, they're suppressing the truth, and God gives them over to that. Paul tells us when a person exchanges the truth about God for a lie, God gives them up to this. They believe that they are wise, but they have become fools. And then he gives like the best example. This is verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Instead of worshiping the God of the universe, they're going to worship an animal. A bear, a calf. Many of you have been around cows, the dumbest creatures on the planet, right? I mean, who would worship that? Who would look at that animal and think, yeah, that's what I've got to worship. That seems like the God of the universe right there in front of me. I was thinking about this. So not only are they dumb, but nature is brutal and it is violent it is not something that we like to look at. I was just thinking about my cats, right? I had two, we have two cats. We got them to kill the rodents on our property. They do a great job with that. And at first, when we first got them, they would kill the mice and they would eat them. And that was fine because the mouse dead disappeared, right? Well, now we feed our cats every day. They recognize they don't need the mice for food, but they still kill them. And if you ever watch a mouse, I mean, you ever watch a cat kill a mouse, right? They play with it. They torture it. I mean... If, it were, if that were a human, that's what we would call it. A cat will bite it once and then let it run off and then go get it and bite it again. And eventually they'll kill it and eventually they'll leave it in the doorstep so that we can see it and make sure that they know, we see it. Who would want to worship that? If my cats were humans, they would be in jail like Silence of the Lambs style. Strapped down, mask over their face, because that's a psychopath. That's how psychopathic people think about and act. Who wants to worship that? That's foolishness. I want to worship the God of love and forgiveness and kindness. The God who does bring his wrath because of his justice. Nobody nobody in their right mind wants to worship nature unless you think about what that means. To worship nature means I have nobody to answer to. There's no God, there's no spiritual text that's telling me I have to act in a certain way. I have to treat people in a certain way. There's no book that says you're a bad person and you need God to save you. You worship yourself, that's easy, right? Nobody's telling you what you have to do. You just get to do whatever you want. That's easy. To worship God means that you are accountable to the God of the universe. And we don't like that. We want to be accountable to ourselves. We want to be in control. We want to make the rules, and we want to decide what's good. And when we become Christians, we recognize that can't happen. My brain is broken. I have this sinfulness in me. I have a sinful desire, a human nature that wants me to do things, that is pushing me on to do things that I know that God forbids. The only reason we would be willing to trade worship for God for worship at anything else is because we want to be God. We want to be in control. And so God looks at that. And he gives people up to their sins. Some people fall into addiction, whether that be alcohol or drugs or gambling. 
Some people become greedy and they work 80 hours a week so they can make as much money as possible. And they step on the little guy and they'll cheat people if it means that their paycheck will be bigger. Some become violent. They end up in jail or they end up dead. And some, as Paul points out, fall prey to sexual sin. I think it's really important that we understand something. In 26 and 27, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The Bible is as clear as day. Homosexuality is sinful. It is something that God disapproves of without question. What did he say here? Just these two verses. He calls it shameless. He calls it contrary to nature. And they received the penalty for their error. It's sin. Let's call it what it is. I'm so sick of our brothers and sisters, Protestant churches, who are not willing to toe the line on this, who are willing to back off and say, well, eh, maybe, I don't know, but let's just let people do what they want. No, it's sin, right? That's, the Bible is clear. And I'm sorry if you don't like that, but your, your beef is not with me. It's right here. It's in these two verses. This is what God says. He calls it sinful because it is. You might be thinking, I don't want to hear about that. That's, that's a political issue. It's not a political. Just because a politician talks about it doesn't make it a political issue, right? It's a biblical issue. It's in the Bible. We have to discuss it. We have to understand it. We have to know what it is. And so what we have here is something that is not debatable. It is as true as anything. It's as clear as anything. It's in black and white right in front of you. If you have a problem with it, go to the Lord. Because here it is. This is not something that we can debate. But there is something, there is a portion of this that I think that is debatable, that I think that is worth discussing. And this is a question that when we as Christians stand up and say that homosexuality is sin, no questions asked, we will not waver on this issue, there are people who would say, well, what about, but don't, don't you think that people are born that way? And here's the thing, I don't understand why the church has taken a hard stance on this question, because I don't know the answer to that question. The Bible doesn't give me any verses that say 100% that we are born with a perfect sexual desire and understanding. In fact, the Bible tells me the opposite, that we are born, not only are we, we, we are born with innate sin. We're born selfish, we're born disobedient, we're born rebellious. We don't seem to have a problem with that. I'm not saying that I believe that a person can be born this way or not. I'm saying I don't know. And I'm saying that as the church, we should not be willing to take this really hard stance and say, no way, they must, this must be a choice if the Bible is not clear about it. Now, I'm telling you, I don't know of a place. If you know of a place, please let me know. And you can correct me and I will stand up next week and say I was wrong. But I'm just not aware of a place that the Bible says everybody is born with the correct understanding in their sexuality. And anybody who, who is tempted with homosexuality, that's a choice. I just, I just don't know. But here's the real question. Is the answer different? Whether they choose it or whether they're born that way, it doesn't matter. The answer to that dilemma, to that temptation within a human being is very simple. You have to fight it. 
in the same way that you fight your sin and I fight my sin, they're fighting a sin. And that's what we want to call somebody who says, I want to follow Jesus, but I have these temptations and I don't know what to do with them. You fight them, right? You might, this might mean that somebody lives their entire lives struggling with this temptation, struggling with that sin. Welcome to the club. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. We are all fighting something our entire life. You never get there. You never get to a point where you say, oh man, I finally slayed that one forever for good. Thank you, Jesus. Like We don't get to a sinless state until the day we die, until our last breath, we are going to be tempted in sin. So that person who is struggling with temptations of homosexuality, they may never get to have a meaningful romantic relationship for the rest of their life. My response to that is, what are you willing to give up for the sake of Christ? Or maybe the better question is, is there anything in your life that you're not willing to give up? And if the answer to that question is yes, if you say yes, this is a thing in my life and I will not give it up. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what anybody says. I'm holding on to this and I'm holding on tight. At best, you better repent. It may even be possible that you are not actually a Christian. I don't know. That's something that you have to answer for yourself. But if you are ever presented with the Bible and it says, and God forbids a thing, and you say, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. I don't care what God says. This is my thing. I will not give it up. I really, really strongly encourage you. Look deep within yourself. Do you really, are you really placing your faith in Christ? You see, because Christ gave up everything so that we could be saved. He gave everything up for us. So, you look at the person who is struggling with this and you say, I don't know if God will ever heal you from these temptations, but are you willing to give up romantic love in your life for the sake of Jesus? Because here's the thing, God never promised you that. God never promised that you would have a loving marriage. God never promised that you would be that you would get to experience that, that you would have kids, all of those things, right, that comes from a healthy biblical sexual desire and drive and marriage and all of that. God never promises that to any of us. If you have that, that's a blessing. If you have a loving spouse and children, that's a blessing. It's not a promise. It's not a human right. It's something that God gave you as a gift. Also, let's say this. For those of you who have been married for more than, say, six weeks, you recognize that marriage is not the thing that brings about fulfillment and joy into your life. Those things come, right? You get these moments of where this is a wonderful thing, but it is not the thing that fixes what is broken inside of you. It's wonderful, but your marriage... And your parenting is more about sanctifying you than it is about bringing joy and fulfillment. I mean, when you get married and when you have kids, what does that force you to do? Think about another human being, about what they think, about what they want, about what their needs are. It makes life harder, right? It's good, but it makes life harder. And so the point is, romantic relationship is not going to solve, if you're depressed, that's not going to solve that problem. 
If you're without joy or if you feel without fulfillment, romantic love is not going to fix that. A marriage is not going to fix that. It makes our lives good and better and more difficult. I'm glad that Dave gave you the good part of the Mother's Day because here's the Mother's Day message I think that we get. And that is this, moms, your family is, this, is there to show you how sinful you are and how much you need Jesus. Happy Mother's Day. And that's true for dads, too. And it's true for kids. It's true for all of us. Living within community and within a marriage, that's what, that is its main job. We are supposed to love our spouse with the sacrificial love that Jesus has for us. That means dying on a cross. Maybe figure, most of the time, figuratively, maybe that means literally one day you have to step in front of somebody who's trying to harm your family to save them. It's to sanctify you. It's to show the love of Jesus to the world. So if we go back to this idea, if a, so if a person is born and they only have these homosexual attractions and they're tempted by this, they have the same task as any other Christian has, to give up our own desires to live more in line with Jesus Christ. If their desire is to have a family, we pray. We pray with them. We ask that God would change their desires to meet the biblical standard of what it looks like to be in a marriage relationship, to have kids and to have a family. But if the person lives their entire life having to sacrifice a family, having to sacrifice romantic relationships for the sake of Christ, it is worth it. Side note, it's possible to have deep, wonderful community and meaningful relationships without a spouse, without children. God's church is what you make it. You can come in every week and see some familiar faces but forget everybody's names. And you come for worship and you go home and you never get to know anybody. And that's, you're allowed to do that, right? There's no check at the door to make sure that you talk to at least 10 people during our, our meet and greet time, right? No requirements. Church can also be a building and a group of people that are the deepest relationships that you have. Your best friends can very easily be in this building. Deeper than some of the relationships that you have with your own family. There are many people that I've been going to church with for more than a decade who I consider closer than my own sister. I love my sister, but I know many people who are closer to me than my own siblings and my nieces and nephews, those little ones that run around in the church, right, that I consider a deeper friendship and relationship, and I care about them. And I don't mean to sound harsh, but, like, I care about them more than I care about my own nieces and nephews, right? This is the family of God. That is a real thing. There are relationships that can happen here that can give you more love and more meaningfulness and more acceptance than you could ever find outside of these walls. And so when we meet somebody who is struggling with this, we don't have to say, well, we better fix you or you're never going to have a meaningful relationship. That's not, we don't have to, that's not the message, right? God's church is full of people who love you and who want to be in your life. Let's be sure to notice that Paul doesn't point out and just single out 
this one sin, right? He lists many, many sins of which, once again, we are all, I know, guilty of at least some, if not all. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Kids, you get disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I mean, I hope none of you are guilty of murder, um, but it may be true, right? I, but most of these, right, we look at it and we say, this is me. I'm guilty of a lot of these things. It is interesting that he puts disobedient to parents in there, right? Because some of these are like, whoo, that's dark. That's pretty evil. But then when we see little kids disobeying their parents, we're like, ah, you know, kids are kids. Kids are going to be kids. That's what they do. Kids, look up here for just give me like one minute. Can you look up here? God says that disobeying mom and dad is very, very bad. He includes it with a list of a lot of really bad things. And what he wants from you, your number one job, your goal in life is to try your best to be obedient to your mom and dad. It's hard. And we know it's hard. Moms and dads, we know that it's hard because we expect a lot from you guys. And I know that it's difficult. But that's your task, right? That's the thing that God wants you to do. And when you're obedient to your mom and dad, not only are they going to be happy, but guess what? God is going to be happy with you for doing that. It's really important that you try really, really hard to do that because it is, it's important. God takes this very, very seriously. And the last thing we'll see here is this last verse, which turns my stomach every time. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such, such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You see, the man without God knows that God is real. He knows God's righteous decrees. And not only do they deny that, do they suppress it, do they do it, but they give approval to others who do the same thing. There's, there's not too many things more evil in this world than approving the sins of others when we know that it would lead them to death. The first sin was done with this exact attitude on both sides. Eve doesn't eat a bite of the apple and realize, I just, made the, I just broke the one rule that God told me not to break. Dang it, like I'm in trouble here. Adam, get away from me. I've just done something horrible. She invites him in to eat too. And Adam stands by and doesn't stop her. By his silence, he approves the thing that she is doing that is sinful. This is what we do when we're in sin and we know we're in sin. We want to invite people into that, right? Because if you're standing alone in your sin, the conviction hits really hard. But if there's a hundred other people doing it too, it makes it so much easier. We want to approve of it. We want to approve of others who are doing it. And this is the world that we live in. It's dark. It's evil. But we, as the church, we, as Christians, we have to be a shining light 
in that darkness. Let us call out sin. We can't approve of it. We can't look on the sinful world and be like, ah, you'll probably be all right. It's fine. I mean, the Bible really, it really says you shouldn't do that. But I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. Let's get, give me a break. No, the Bible is true today. It's just as true today as when Paul penned these words by the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. It is living. It is active. 2,000 years after it is written, it is still just as true right now in this moment that it was when he read it, when he wrote it. We cannot give approval to sin. We must stand up in the darkness and be a shining light. We must shine the light of Christ to the world. We must proclaim the righteousness of God, his decrees. We must call out the thing that we know, that everybody knows that God is real that his law is true, and that if we do not follow it, that if we do not have faith in Jesus, we will end up in hell for eternity. We have to call the world to repent and to believe. Ask for forgiveness. Receive this gift of faith. Receive the gift of grace and of mercy that can only come from God. That is our calling. If we're not able to do anything else as a church, this is something that we must do. We must be that light to the world. We must call out sin and we must call people to repentance. Because we see here that God has given people up to their sin, but God's arm is not too short to save. The man who comes before the Lord and repents will be saved. God will rescue them from that debased mind, from those passions, whatever it is that they are using to suppress the truth of God, God can save them from that, but they can't do it if they don't hear the gospel, and so we must go out. We must preach it. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the gift of love and grace and faith that you have given to us. Lord, we know that we don't deserve it. We know that at one point in our life, we were just like anyone else who is an unbeliever, Lord, that we were suppressing the truth and that you woke us up to what is true. It's not because we're smarter or better or any, but you just, you gave us your grace and you gave us faith and we are so grateful for that. Father God, help us to be bold and to be courageous, to be loving and kind and gentle as the church, as we share the light of Christ with the world. As we call sin what it is, as we're not willing to back down, Lord, that we do that with all love. There's no hate in this, Lord. We we love the same way that you love. We love the world and we want to see salvation come to those whom we know, our neighbors, our friends, our family members who are not believers. Help us to stand firm on the truth and share the gospel and be the light of Christ to the world. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.